Uh, turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 5, and uh, we're going to tackle the biggest part of the chapter. You can't break this part up, though, so uh, we're going to try. I guess you could, but eh. But uh, we're going to tackle today uh, verses 17 through uh, 42, and um, just see what the Spirit has for us this morning from, from His Word. Um, so Acts chapter 5, I'm going to start reading verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and let me just stop right there, remember everything that's come before this now. And I believe Luke very intentionally uh, ends the previous paragraph uh, with that statement. We talked about this a little bit last week, that the unclean spirits were being brought to the apostles, and they were getting smacked around, right? They're getting cast out. People are being healed. So again, this is now the forces of God, the people of God, the church, the apostles, on enemy territory, dominating the enemy through the power of the Spirit, okay? So then what we read here is no surprise. This is a counterpunch by Satan, right? So, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors And brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senates of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up. And gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care 
what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's enough right there, right? Man, that's power. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our heritage, God. We read this. This is our story. Thank you for the reminders from this chapter in the book of Acts of the power behind the church. Help us today, God, in the midst of a dark culture, to have the same boldness, the same perspective that the apostles did, that the early church had, that we would boldly stand and proclaim your truth, though it may cost us something, though it may be hard, though it may be difficult. Help us be faithful to follow. Take your words here, God, through your spirit, and work in our hearts. Build up your church. God, we need you. I need you. We need you to work this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go a little uh, old school cartoon here. Anyone uh, recognize this? All right. I don't know how many of the younger generation recognizes this. If your parents have done a great job discipling you, you will know who this is. It's one of my favorite cartoons as a kid. Uh, Coyote and Roadrunner. And if you know the story or if you know the, how the show went, uh, Coyote was always trying to catch the Roadrunner. And he'd order things from the Acme Corporation, remember this, and get the box from Acme, and it would have this new trap in it, this contraption, and Coyote would set it up. Sure that this time he was going to catch Roadrunner, and almost every episode ended right the same way, with Roadrunner falling off the cliff, down, and poof, and a poof of dust at the bottom of the cliff. And uh, to my knowledge, there was never any finale to this show where Coyote actually cut, caught Roadrunner. Did, anyone, did, did it ever happen? I don't think so. Okay, good. Then the illustration works. Um, it never did. You know, it's, it's interesting. People who think that the Word of God is strictly without humor are missing some. There's some humor, actually, in this passage. And as I was reading this passage, I immediately thought of this. Because this, in essence, is what's going on here at the book of Acts. The religious leaders are coyote conniving, constantly trying to come up with a way to silence these guys. They're sick of it. Shut up. Stop talking. Beating them, throwing them in prison, threatening them. 
And try as they might, they cannot stop this movement. The, the, the people keep getting away. The, the, these apostles, these troublesome men, these followers of Jesus. And it's an exercise in futility, much like Coyote's attempt to capture Roadrunner was always an exercise in futility. It always ended the same way. And so it has been for the church. And so it will be for the church. Amen? So I want us to walk through the narrative here and learn from it. Now, mentioned last week how Luke is kind of circling back on his themes. And on the surface, you would read here in Acts 5 and think, oh yeah, we've we've been here before. And you'd be right. There's a lot of similarities to the last time that Peter and John were were arrested. And even Peter's sermon, his speech this time, sounds very uh, much like his first time. But if you're paying careful attention, you're going to see it's not simply a restatement. It's not simply a, a re-emphasis and a reinforcement. There are some differences. And I believe what we've seen here is intentional by Luke. It's an intensification, right? So, so some differences. Last time, it was Peter and John who were arrested, perhaps the lame man as well. There's only two of them. This time, it's all of the apostles who now have been targeted, right? Last time, they were warned and released. This time, they're imprisoned, and now there's a supernatural element introduced. An angel comes and lets them out of prison. You see a more direct involvement of God here, right? It's ramping up in intensification. You see the forces of evil and good squaring off a little more clearly here in this passage. And lastly, one of the big differences is that the first time, they were released with a warning. Not this time. Now they have all the apostles. This time, they beat them. They physically harm them, inflict suffering on them. Most commentators think it was most likely the 39 or the 40 minus 1 like Jesus received. 39 lashings. Okay? So there's a big difference. So there's an intensification here in this time over the last time. And I think what Luke is doing here is showing us that things are getting worse. And I think one of the takeaways we can have from this, it, it speaks to those of us who sit here who fret over things in our own world getting worse. And sometimes I think we expend too much energy lamenting that things are getting worse, and we expend our energy trying to get things back to easy or normal instead of ministering in the context that we are in. I, I feel like I learned this in my own life. I feel like during COVID, right? During COVID, what did, I, what did we all keep saying to myself, ourselves? I, I know what I kept saying to myself. When we get back to normal, when we get back to normal, I'll do this when we get back to normal. And I felt at one point in all of that, I felt God convicting me a little bit going, so what are you going to do now? Because it's not normal now. You're just going to wait? Right? But yeah, I want to get back to normal. When it gets easy, when it gets normal. We're called to minister now, right? Normal became the goal. And we do this still. Normal, easy, it becomes the goal. And we tell ourselves when things are easy, I will minister and serve. But we need to get used to ministering in the context of hard and harder. We do. The church in Acts learned this lesson. Easy and convenient did not become the condition for service and gospel proclamation in Acts. Now listen, I'll be the first one to sit here and go, I don't like this because I like easy. I don't like opposition. I don't like hard. I'd rather have easy. And I can tell myself, well, uh, you know, I'll give more when things are easier. That's not the trajectory we're on. I don't think I need to convince you of that. We cannot wait for easy or convenient before we step up and serve God. We can't do that. So let's walk through the narrative here. I gave you, again, like an outline-ish. It's more kind of guideposts through the narrative. 
and some highlights. So first of all, as we've already kind of talked about, opposition arises against the apostles. So we read right away, the high priests rise up, all who are with him, these are the Sadducees. If you remember from a few weeks back, the Sadducees were the main power brokers there in Jerusalem. These are the worldly powers once again setting themselves up against the followers of Jesus. The Sadducees were closely aligned with Rome. They valued that partnership because it kind of protected their power. It was one of those things like you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours type of relationship. And once again, as we read this, we think about our own world, our own context, it does seem often like it's always the powerful aligned against the people of God, against God's truth. Well, it was like that back then too. So I draw encouragement from that. There's nothing new under the sun, right? We're fighting the same battle. We see that the, uh, the apostles um, or um, the, the, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, they're motivated by jealousy. This is the same thing. Remember, Pilate acutely observed back at the crucifixion of Jesus that the charges brought against Jesus were motivated by jealousy. Jealousy becomes a powerful weapon of the enemy here, um, you know, from, from the time of Jesus into the time of the, the apostles. Uh, Proverbs 6.34, this proverb makes perfect sense as you read this. It says, jealousy makes a man furious. Right? These men are motivated by jealousy. The apostles were stealing their thunder, stealing their influence, and they didn't like it at all. But here's the thing, again, the religious leaders are jealous for themselves. They're not jealous for God and his glory. For them, service to God was a means to a selfish end. And again, it's tragic. Because these people who should have been looking out for Israel's spiritual well-being are looking out for their own. This isn't the point of the passage, but I was forced to think in my own life as I contemplated this, am I really jealous for God and his glory? Is jealousy for God's glory what motivates me, or am I like the Sadducees in the sense that I'm in it for what benefits me? Right? It's a great side application here. Also note, too, don't let this be missed. Uh, don't let this point be missed. Um, notice how powerful of a weapon jealousy is in the hands of the enemy. Jealousy becomes one of the motivating things at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jealousy becomes one of the motivating things behind the persecution of the apostles in the early church. Right? That doesn't hit too far from home. Jealousy is a powerful weapon in the enemy's hands. And I just caution you as you read this. Don't slip into the same thing because it's really easy for us to do that. Right? So they arrest the apostles. They place them in a public prison. Right? They wanted people to know about this. They wanted to make an example of these guys. Remember back then, it was, uh, it was a lot more of a shame-based culture. So they wanted that. They wanted these men to look shameful. And they wanted to make sure that they were identified with a guy who hung on a cross, right? That's, that's shame. So they, they wanted it to be known. They wanted to shame these men as they arrested them and put them in prison. So again, like I said a minute ago, none of this is any surprise given how chapter 5, verse 16 left off about the unclean spirits. The forces of darkness have gotten smacked in the mouth Pretty hard, I might add. And they're swinging back. Satan has become very reactionary since the resurrection. Good things are happening in the church, and he hits back. And again, I think that stands as a warning to us today. When good things happen, when things are going well, we better not let our guard down. Because the enemy will always look for an opportunity to hit back and stage a counter-offensive. 
I've often thought that too. Even Sometimes it's not even when the good things are happening. Sometimes it's when the preparation for doing a good thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the week before a wilderness trip or our, our base camp or sometimes just before preaching or teaching, like you feel like, why is everything like hard this week? Why do I feel like, I think sometimes the enemy has a preemptive strike. I think sometimes he's like, uh, I'm going to try to discourage you. I'm going to try to demoralize you, right? There's a real battle here. I've told this to people over the years. I just had last week, I had a, met someone over at Forest Hills Foods and they were talking about some changes they needed to make and really um, get into a place, I've been praying for this person and, and uh, seeing God start to work in their heart and, and, um, and I'm so encouraged by that. But I said to them, and I often say this to people, and I have to tell this to myself too, like, be ready. I'm not trying to be a downer here, but be ready. You're making some choices, you're making some hard choices and you're starting to want to do the right thing, but be ready because the enemy is going to smack back at you at some point. And, and don't be discouraged by that. In fact, be encouraged. The fact that you're doing this and he's hitting back means you're doing something that's annoying him. <laughs> so be encouraged by that. But you got to be ready for that counterattack. Don't, don't, don't think you've arrived. Don't, don't think, oh, things are going to be easy now that I've surrendered. To God. No. Be ready. The high priest, they rose up. Why? Because good things were happening. When the church is feeling good about itself, things are going great, be careful. Be careful, don't let your guard down, right? That's the application here. Evil will not sit quietly by and surrender its territory. You, you have to be training, you have to be prepping, you have to have your mind full of scripture so when that comes, you know how to respond. You have to be cultivating those relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ so that when, when you're walking along and you hit that hard time, you know, I have the relationship with, with Ted or, or John or whoever, and I could say, hey, I need this right now, and, and, and we have that friendship, that relationship where they can challenge me and I can challenge them. You, you have to be cultivating that. You have to have those weapons at your disposal for when the enemy claps back. So they're thrown in prison. God intervenes in a miraculous way and directs the apostles to reenter the temple and publicly continue to proclaim truth, right? During the night, an angel appears. There's some irony. There's some humor here. You know why? The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. <laughs> I think Luke's laughing while he writes this. The Sadducees are gathering against us. Beings they don't even believe in <laughs> are the ones doing the action here, letting these guys out of prison. They bring them out, and they command the men, go back to preach. I love this, just like the resurrection of Jesus, right? Just like the resurrection of Jesus, the angel has no problem bypassing the human guards, the human doors, the human locks, right? The angel didn't show up and go, I thought there were only going to be two guards here. I can take on two of them, but there's four. <laughs> God, can you send some reinforcements? No, it didn't happen. Not a problem. Interesting, Luke doesn't really give us the details, but we know that they're out. They escape, right? They're overruled by God. They're powerless, they're instructed to go, stand in the temple, and speak all the words of this life. What they're being told to do is go talk about Jesus. The word life, that's, that's, that's Jesus, right? Go speak in Jerusalem, in the building controlled by the high priest himself, despite danger. Go right back into the heart of the beast and proclaim, right? This would be the, the equivalent of... Um, there's a big fo college football rivalry, right, with the state to the south of here, right? We understand that. It would be like on that last game of the year, going to the opposing team stadium wearing the colors of the other team, right? You're on enemy territory. You feel that. They're probably going to get some things said to you, 
Uh, this, here, here's a better, maybe a better example. How many of you right now would feel comfortable going to Moscow and running the streets with a Ukrainian flag in your hand? Probably wouldn't end well, right? That's what they're being told to do. You go back to the temple, controlled by the Sadducees and the high priests. You go back there and speak all the words of this life. Again, I said this, right? Jesus Jesus is the life. We see this throughout the gospel, right? John 1, 4, in Jesus was life. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's telling them, go back and publicly declare Jesus unapologetically. Speak all the words. Hold nothing back. Give them God's truth without compromise. That's what he's telling them to do. And note, without hesitation, they enter and they begin to teach. They do it. Don't even think twice about it. Right back into the danger zone, right? A few points of application. During trials and persecution, God is still aware of his servants and provides protection. God is with his people when they suffer. Right? This is Richard Wormbrand. Uh, he was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, Richard spent many years in prison. He was persecuted for his faith. And I read an account recently he was uh, writing and he talked about being imprisoned. Chunks of skin missing out of his body. That's one of the ways they tortured him. They would just rip parts of his flesh out of his body. And he talked about being in his cell and feeling the presence of God in such a powerful way that he stood up in the midst of that and was rejoicing and dancing and singing praises to God. He felt the presence of God. He knew that God hadn't abandoned him, that God hadn't forgotten about him there. So this tells us, this reminds us that that God can intervene any way he wants, any time he wants, right? It just might not look the same every time. God doesn't promise supernatural deliverance every time. He doesn't always intervene. Matter of fact, more often than not, he doesn't intervene in the way he did in Acts. Even in the book of Acts, we see this, right? Paul, Paul wasn't miraculously freed from prison in Jerusalem in Acts 23. He wasn't miraculously freed from prison in Caesarea. He wasn't miraculously freed from prison in Romans 20, uh, when he was in Rome in Acts 28. As we read Acts, we know that just in a couple chapters, Stephen, Stephen is killed. We know that James is beheaded. So God doesn't always intervene in these miraculous ways, but God is always aware of his people and their suffering, and he's always present with them, right? God will sometimes direct us into the storm. God will sometimes direct us into the storm. The soldiers, as they are aboard their ships, getting ready to go uh, to, uh, on the shores of Okinawa, they were told by their superiors as they landed to expect an 80 to 85% casualty rate. Now go <laughs> into the storm, right? God often sends us into the storm. We love easy. We think that if something is hard and will require sacrifice, that it must not be God's will. God wouldn't ask that of me. God's supposed to bless me. I'm supposed to get good things when I serve him, right? I thought of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He says, I will stay in Ephesus because there's a wide door for effective ministry as well as many adversaries and much opposition. Wait a minute. Like, most of us, I think, would read that and go, man, there's a great opportunity for ministry there, but there's much opposition. So I'm supposed to go somewhere else. Because God forbid. And here's Paul going, there's a great opportunity for the gospel. And there's a lot of adversity there too. Into the storm, Right? God sends them back, 
here in Acts 5, into the temple to speak publicly. I mean, he could have just said, hey, that, that house-to-house thing, just, just go with that. It's safer. They'll have a harder time finding you. They can't kind of nail you down there. No, go speak publicly in the temple. Following Jesus often leads to suffering. Following Jesus often leads to hard. I remember Jody standing up here a, a few weeks ago, Jody Bruno, talking about um, 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 King's Table. Thank you. And, and how she runs into these people who... And they want to give money, but they actually don't want to come and hang out with the people and give themselves in that way. And, and she said, you know, I, we need people who are willing to do hard, not just the easy of, of giving our money, right? But that's what we do sometimes. We avoid the hard. If I'm honest, and it was part of my struggle. As we, we talked about changing our family and, and, and going through that, that process with the foster system and bringing someone into our family, Right? I mean, I, I feel like I had some valid concerns, but honestly, part of it, too, was selfish. This is going to get hard. Like the kids are getting to an age where you like, don't need babysitters anymore. Like, date night anytime we want, you know? Like, how awesome is that? And God says, no, I want you to do hard. I want to do hard. But sometimes God does that. Back into the storm. Go, right? Leave the comfortable. Oh, that's Okinawa, by the way. It doesn't look like a Sunday picnic, right? Go, go into that. Go. Right? Sometimes that's what God calls us to do. Don't compromise on truth. Speak all the words of this life. Right? Jesus, the gospel, it's our primary message. I've got to speak Jesus. I've got to speak the gospel. I said this here just a few weeks ago. Always give him Jesus. Always start to go to the gospel. You know, we're asked a lot of questions in our world today. What do you think about this issue and this issue? What do you think about LGBTQ? That's fine. I'm happy to answer that. But can I actually start back here? Can I give you the gospel? Because none of this really makes sense unless you understand this. God created. There was a fall. Everything was plunged into darkness. Everything's been bad. But God made a way back. Can we, can we just talk about that first and talk about Jesus and how it made its way back and, and how Jesus is the answer? And then we can get to some of this other stuff. But I've got to give them the gospel. I've got to give people Jesus. None of the rest of it really makes sense apart from Jesus and the gospel, right? Give them that. Don't compromise on that. Eckhart Schnabel says, Christians insist that the message of Jesus as the only Messiah and Savior must be preached, whether it is welcomed or not, because doing so is the work of God. Christians are confident that their message and activities, if and when they correspond to God's will, cannot be checked, curtailed, or destroyed by people who eventually turn out to be God's enemies because God is on their side. I proclaim the gospel. And I obey when God directs. I obey when God directs. One of the songs that uh, we sang when I was traveling years ago uh, was an old Gaither vocal band song called uh, Beyond the Open Door. If anyone here remembers that. But this song was just meaningful to me. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet. I, I think oftentimes in terms of song lyrics. I don't know what that says about me, but I just associate music with a lot of things in my life. And this, this, this verse here has always stayed with me. And I remember the last time we sang, this is the last song we sang together. I remember we, I was crying through this, just wondering what God had next and being afraid of what God might have next. And, and it was these words, in the things familiar, we find security Resisting all the changes that days and years can bring. When God decides to lead you through an open door, 
inviting you to walk in realms you've known, never known before. And it just goes on to talk about following the Spirit to where he's calling you, even if it is uncertain and sounds hard because he's walking you into a place of power where he wants to use you to stand for him and obey him and proclaim truth on his behalf. Right? I thought about this with Jeff. Right? I remember Jeff struggling. Obeying when God directs. Leave the place you've been for 26 years. It's hard. But obey. I got to do what God calls me to do. Sometimes it's scary. And sometimes it's going to result in hard. But their example is there for us. Immediately they obeyed. So what's God asking you to obey him in today? What hard might he be calling you into today? You gotta obey, right? While all this is going on, meanwhile, back in the council chamber, right? Thinking of that as an unfolding story, the worldly powers are again gathering. Verses 21 through 26, we see now all the Senate. Again, this is the Sanhedrin. They're gathering, probably with a little bit of an excitement, and probably like, we're going to bring these guys in here today, and we're going to give it to them, tell them what's up, threaten them again. <laughs> but the day doesn't quite unfold the way they had planned, does it? This is why I said the whole scene is kind of like humorous. It really is. They're gathering to exert their power and their authority and go get those men out of the jail so we can tell them what's up, so we can, you know, intimidate them. And... Um, they're not there. <laughs> like reading this is like, you know, reading a book or watching the movie where, where you know the good guys have already disabled the weapon or whatever, the plan of the bad guy. I love it. And, but the bad guy doesn't know it yet. That, that makes it even better, right? Because he's arrogant. And he's giving his evil laugh like, ha, ha, ha. And he, he presses the button that's going to destroy the world. But you know the button's not going to work. And then he's like, oh no, what is that? You know, and you see him, then he goes down and he's defeated. And it's like, it's even better, right? And that's kind of what reading this is like. It's like, we already know. <laughs> right? Caiaphas is about to push that button. It's not going to work. <laughs> already defeated. Right? So and once again, we see the, the worldly powers gathering. The same spot that Jesus has stood in. The same spot that Peter and John had stood in. But again, small problem. No one's in the prison. And everything is in order there. The guards are there. The door's locked. Like, like this is strange. And I love the line. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. You think? <laughs> Again, right? This is Coyote and Roadrunner. Like, what is going on with these guys? And you think about it in the context of how the whole Luke acting is unfolded. For the second time in a matter of weeks, a secured guarded area, a secured guarded cell is found empty. The tomb and now the prison cell. This is becoming a problem for these guys. Right? You think the people who keep standing in the middle of this room and being questioned and opposed by the religious leaders, we keep losing them. They keep disappearing on us. And maybe that's why in a few verses Gamaliel says, you know guys, maybe we should reconsider what we're going to do to these guys. What's going to come of this? I'll tell you what's going to come to it. It's going to be a problem. That's what's coming to this, right? An identified, unidentified messenger enters the room and he declares, look, 
I mean, this is a cry of surprise, a cry of, like, you're not going to believe this. This is at home. I can tell when Zach's watching a basketball game or a baseball game or something, something really cool happens. Because all of a sudden I hear from the living room, Dad, Dad, come here, come look. Right? And I'm going to go running in. He's like, Dad, hurry, 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 hurry. You know? That's, what, that's the expression. They're like, guys, you got to come see this. Now, it isn't as, you know, when Zach cut it, it's a fun, come see a fun thing. Um, but, but not here. But it's that same, like, oh, my, you're not going to believe this. Come look. <laughs> Those guys who uh, you put in prison, yeah, not only are they not there, but they're actually back in the temple preaching and teaching. They're where, right? I hate rabbits. I, I kind of like, I like them in, in theory. They're cute and cuddly. But when I became a homeowner and started planting flowers and gardens, I, they're the worst. Like, it doesn't matter what I do. Like, how do they, I, you know, fences, poison, other things, like armed guards. No, I don't do that. But, and like, you're still going, they're still eating the flowers. I'm like, how does this happen? They keep, or it's like your kids. Does anyone have a kid who's like a master of escape? Like, you like, stay here. And they're standing there, and you literally turn around for three and a half seconds and turn back, and they're gone. Like, how do they keep doing that, right? Our youngest, he's a, he's a master. I think he has special powers. You know, he's like gone. Like, and, and, and he's where, like, I told you 800. Like, why do you keep going there? Like, stay. Like, it's that same frustration here. Like, like they're back there again? Like, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to keep a cell empty or full? What do we have to do to get these guys to shut up? They're not listening to us. They keep appearing. They keep causing a problem. A mockery is being made of the leader's authority here. This is actually humorous. It really is. They have no authority in comparison to God. Right? So the captain and the officers, they, uh, they go get them. But not by force this time. Right? They know. These soldiers are afraid. Remember we had read last week, the past couple uh, weeks, we, we've looked at this, that the apostles, the believers, had garnered the favor of the people, the respect of the, fa- the people. These soldiers knew they, they couldn't go. And Luke makes it a point to, to, to say they didn't use violence because that was kind of their game. That's what they did. They were thugs. And they would go and they would intimidate by violence to bring people in. They knew they couldn't lay a hand on these guys because if they did, there was going to be a riot because the people were, you know, respected these. So they go, they're afraid, again, it's making a mockery of the leaders here. And they bring them. The religious leaders, or the, the, the apostles, they come quietly. They had obviously learned from Jesus. Peter's not swinging a sword this time, right? They go. And they bring them back before the religious leaders. Here's the application, right? As you look at this, and again, I see the humor of this, mocking the religious leaders. Human authority that opposes God is a paper tiger. We don't need to fear it. And he just asked the question, who or what do you need to stop fearing? Who is it, who are you allowing to intimidate you in your faith and your proclamation of truth? There's confrontation here between the council and the true religious leaders. It is interesting to me that they never ask them how they got out. It's never part of the conversation. I, that'd be like the first thing I want to know. They don't ask them that question. I don't know why. Maybe they didn't want to hear the answer. Right? But they do go back and forth here. And the apostles, Peter, he's defiant. Once again, we've got to obey God rather than man. Again, keep in mind that these are the guys who scattered on the night of Jesus' arrest. They're not scattering anymore, right? They've interacted with the risen Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. They don't run anymore. They're defiant. And they go, you're trying to put this guy's blood on us. 
We told you not to do this before. You know, Peter didn't go, oh, I forgot. Sorry. Hey, we'll do it again. No. You're trying to put the, his blood on it. Peter's like, yep, yeah, we are. You crucified him. You killed him. You hung him on the tree. Right? The boldness. This is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember to Nebuchadnezzar? Be, be it known, we will not serve your God. It's that same type of boldness, that same attitude, that same spirit. It's Martin Luther, right? Here I stand. God help me. I cannot do otherwise. I do love this, though, too, in the midst of this. Don't miss this. That those of these guys are the opposition. Peter still makes it a point to say, we're proclaiming Jesus through whom there's repentance and forgiveness. Once again, to the people who killed Jesus, right? It's not just that I want to defeat you or whatever. He, he's like, no, we're going to keep pleasing God, but there is repentance and, and forgiveness. And once again, it's, it's proclaimed. But there's confrontation. And again, accept the fact that confrontation will be a natural outflow of proclaiming truth. If you're looking for easy, then you're not going to proclaim truth. Because if you proclaim truth, there's going to be confrontation. It's the nature of the gospel, right? Oh, the religious leaders, no surprise, this doesn't go over very well. And they respond with rage and murderous intent. Rage and murderous intent. Right away, my mind went to this. Remember Revelation chapter 12? It kind of pulls back the curtain and gives us an insight into what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, right? Rage. Then the dragon became furious, became enraged with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You're seeing that play out here in the book of Acts. It's the rage of the enemy manifested through the religious leaders directed against the people of God. Hey, this is our calling, church. We have an enemy who wants to oppose us. But be encouraged because this is also in Revelation chapter 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, it's the dragon, Satan has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they... They, the people of God, the church, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The people of God overcome the dragon because they don't choose easy. They embrace hard. And they say, I don't care what it costs. And this is what we see with the apostles. And this is what we see through people, our brothers and sisters, down through the years. When they haven't given in and caved in and kept their mouth shut out of fear, they overcome. We overcome. This is our story. This is where it ends. So we follow this example and respond to the rage of the enemy with bold proclamation because he loses. Right? Kill him, right? Here's the application point for that. Uh, You may have to face rejection, rage, anger. They want to kill the apostles, but a voice of reason, reason and confirmation come from a, a, an unlikely source. Gamaliel, one of the most prominent rabbis of his day, as you read later in Acts, he actually he was the, 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 the rabbi that uh, Saul, who became Paul, that was Saul's rabbi, Gamaliel, most respected men of his day. He makes this observation. He says, listen guys, let's leave these guys alone, because as if it's fake, it's not going to come to anything. But if it's real, we might be opposing God himself. And here we go, a non-follower of Jesus at this point. I'd like to think that maybe Gamaliel came to Christ at some point. I hope he did. But at this point, 
a non-follower of Christ giving one of the greatest apologetic statements for the validity of Christianity. If it lasts, it's real. Well, guess what? Here we sit 2,000 years later. Guess what? It's real. They weren't able to stop it. I was reading an article last week about the gospel in China. I don't have time to to read it today, but uh, they're saying now this guy is um, uh, with the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, and they're saying we think the gospel proclamation and spread in China is even further along than we've realized and estimating that the number of believers in China could be between 150 and 175 million people. The president is aware of this. This is why they're tearing down crosses. This is why they're trying to stop it. Because he knows. They know. It's a threat. It can't be stopped. Right? Based on Gamaliel's dictum, the existence of congregations of believers in Jesus who confess allegiance to Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior of the world, not only surviving 2,000 years, but growing in ways that were unimaginable in Jerusalem in AD 30-31, is an indication that has the same stamp of God's approval. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So I can be confident in the claims and the validity of Christianity. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. I'm going to close this in a song. And just leave you with this. Again, once again, underlying all of this, um, the disciples, they go out from here, defiant. They continue to preach the gospel, joyfully accepting whatever may come. I want to have that kind of love for Jesus, right? that I'm willing to suffer. I find it joy to suffer. Someone makes fun of me, I'm like, hey, I just suffered for Jesus. How cool is that? And they go out and they continue to proclaim because they're not afraid. Will you do the same? Carissa, when she was young, had this, uh, it's going to sound really funny, but had this stuffed question mark. It's about this tall, about this big. It was named Questy. Had a little grandma hat on it. And the idea, it came in this thing, it was supposed to, you're supposed to give it to your kids to teach them how to like, not interrupt. So if like, they had a question and the adults were talking, like, they're supposed to walk up with Questy and just stand there. So you notice it and like, oh, you have a question, just a minute. And then, I don't know. Like for me, it just worked just as effectively. To, if they interrupted me, they got in trouble. And that was just as effective. But anyways, we had Questy. Carissa was scared to death of Questy. It was hilarious. I mean, it was like, it looked like a grandma question mark. I, scared to death. And um, like it was funny. I, like any good dad, I, I had fun with that. You know, like she'd be in bed at night. I'd open the door of her bedroom, throw it up in her bed and shut the door, you know. And, You'd hear Kathy's like, you're a jerk, you know, and you hear Chris like, ah, you know. Well, now it's funny, right? You hold up Questy, and Chris is not afraid of Questy anymore. We laugh about it, right? Because it's nothing. Some of you are afraid of Questy. Questy intimidates some of you. And just as ridiculous as that sounds, right, that's true. The powers of this world have no more claim on you than that stuffed question mark. So don't fear it.